<clears throat> well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. I'm glad to see you all this morning. Um, I want to pray for us before we open God's Word together, and um, I want to just read you a text. It's not what we're looking at today, but something that I found uh, very encouraging and was reminded of as we were singing. I want to read it to you. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. It says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Here the writer of Hebrews is talking about the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and how scary it was to everybody in Israel when they saw the appearance of God. But this is what he says, he, beginning verse 22, he says, But you, meaning if you're a believer in Jesus, this is what's true of you and I. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. Who is that? That's us, the assembly of the firstborn. Who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, we have far, far better. Uh, that God is now approachable to us in a way that he, was, he never was before. That we have a... We have the blood of a new covenant that covers all our sin and allows us to draw near to God. In fact, that allows God to dwell not just with us, but within us in a way that never could before. And so, uh, a lot to celebrate here this morning as we come to worship. Amen. I want to pray for us. Uh, I want to also remember Paul and Stacy Murdian. Um, Stacy ships out today. And so, uh, certainly, uh, on both ends of that, the Murdians need our prayer. And, um, and so, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant that makes sinners into righteous men and brings us into the assembly of the firstborn from the dead. Father, we do not deserve these things. We could not earn them. We didn't even know they were available when we were lost. And by your grace, Father, you have brought us all these things. Father, I pray as we worship you this morning that we would worship you in deep awareness of how much you love us and how much you desire to give us each day a new beginning, a new opportunity to walk with you in faith and in holiness. And Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would help us to understand it and to obey it and to apply it. We also pray for Paul and Stacy and their family as Stacy deploys today. Uh, Father, we pray for strength and endurance 
uh, for a faith that grows uh, in the midst of a hard time, uh, for, um, for great joy in a reunion uh, yet to come, and Father, for your protection on this family uh, on both sides of the ocean. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are going to continue our study through the Gospel of John. So if you've got your Bible there, uh, we're going to finish up chapter 18 today. Uh, it's, um, as we get into it, I want to ask you a hard question. It's the question really at the heart of Jesus' trial. Uh, it's the question that forms the outline uh, on the back of your bulletin, if you have that in your hands. And it's the question that forms the basis of a lot of doctrinal and political controversies between Christians and between Christians and non-Christians here in our country. And the question is this, do you want Jesus, King of the eternal kingdom, or do you want temporary power and glory in the earthly one? Do you want Jesus, King of the eternal kingdom, or temporary power and glory in an earthly one? And that is a temptation that we all face. That's a, that's a question at the heart of the text that we're confronted with today. So I want to read the, uh, the rest of this chapter to us. As Jesus stands before Pilate, bear this question in mind. Beginning verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release for you at the Pass uh, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. 
Now this is a, a deceptively simple passage as you read it. It's a narrative. It's telling the true story about what happened to Jesus when he was arrested. But there is a reason that John includes it. And I think the reason is to confront the reader with the question that the Jewish leaders of John's day answered wrongly. Do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus? It's clear by this point that Jesus is the Messiah after all. He has done many miracles. Amen? In fact, we have seen six of them recorded just in John to this point. Uh, we've seen the dead raised, the lame walk, the blind see, water turned into wine at His command, lepers are healed. And five days before, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey, to shouts of Hosanna the King. And these religious leaders know all these things. If you, if you read the Gospels closely, you know that every time Jesus did a miracle, the religious leaders heard about it and sent a delegation to go investigate whether it was true. And in not a single circumstance did anybody come back and say, no, 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 that was a hoax. That's not what happened. They did come up with all kinds of alternative explanations to explain what had happened. One of the most popular of theirs was, well, Jesus has a demon, and that was what enables him to do these incredible acts of power. Of course, you remember if you, if you remember your history of the Civil War where Abraham Lincoln got it, right? What was Jesus' answer? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he asked this question. If I drive out demons by the power of demons, by whom do you and your sons cast them out? Right? Jesus was always good with the probing question. But they have seen all of these miracles. They have seen Jesus announce His coming, riding on a donkey just like Zechariah predicted Messiah would do. There, none of this has been in secret, in other words. These guys know that there's all kinds of evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. But what did they do? They had this man arrested. And having tried him before their own council, they brought him to the secular authority, to Pontius Pilate, who is the prefect of the Roman province of Judea. Why? Because they want him to be put to death. And Roman law does not allow them to put anyone to death. Now, there's two other details in the first section of this narrative we need to be sure to notice. Uh, number one is the shocking detail of verse 28. Do you see it? Look at verse 28 there in your Bible. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. You get that? Here's what's going on. These guys are all religious leaders. And to go into a Gentile's house, Pilate was a Gentile, he was a Roman, to go into a Gentile's house is to render yourself ceremonially unclean so that you would not be able to go and participate in this great high holy day feast of the Passover. But John includes that detail because 
he wants us to see the irony in that. Because here stands Jesus, the Passover lamb that the celebration of Passover points to, and they're having him put to death. And they are so concerned about being ceremonially defiled while they're committing murder. We're going to send an innocent man to his death, but we don't want to be defiled in the process. Is that crazy? I mean, Jesus said of them, you all strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. In other words, you pay real close attention to tiny little things, and you ignore great big things that are much, much more important. Which does God care about most, whether you ate the feast or whether you committed murder? Can I go out on a limb here and suggest that maybe eating the feast would not be the most important thing you're involved in that day? And, and so there's this huge contrast between what they are doing and what they're unwilling to do. Well, I wouldn't want to go into a Gentile's house. But I'll be complicit in a murder. That's okay. It's incredible. And what is worse, they are completely oblivious. They're completely oblivious to the reality of what they're doing. And the second detail we want to notice is verse 32. Do you catch this? We talked a lot about this last week, about the fact that Jesus is in total control of what's going on. That the very thing that they're doing is something Jesus had already planned and purposed to happen. And so John notes, verse 32, this was to fulfill the word Jesus had spoken. To show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus had already predicted I was going to be crucified. Well, crucifixion is not a Jewish punishment. It's a Roman one. And so Jesus had already planned. In fact, if you read the Scriptures, the Scriptures say that Jesus was crucified before the world was made. So how long ago did Jesus know? Did the Son of God know that He would become incarnate as a man and be crucified by Pilate on this particular day? Uh, however far back you go, further back than that. When was the, how old is the earth? However old it is before that. That's when, that's when the Son of God knew what would happen. Jesus is in total control and everything is unfolding exactly according to his purpose. So what was their answer to the question, do you want Jesus? No. We will not have this man be our king. Look with me now at verses 33 to 38. Pilate discovers who Jesus is and the fact that he is king of the eternal kingdom here's the scene it's early in the morning we don't know precisely how uh, all of the events of jesus crucifixion fit together uh, not you know not one gospel writer includes every aspect of this we know that at one point Pilate 
sees Jesus and then he sends him off to Herod and then he, because he's a Galilean and Herod is in control of Galilee and Herod sends him back. And so I think this is the end conversation after, after Herod has sent him back to Jesus or sent Jesus back to Pilate. And it's early in the morning. It's, it's possibly sometime after midnight, sometime between midnight and six. We know that for sure. John skips portions of the night. He didn't personally witness. Uh, but here it is. It's dark. It's before sunrise. And these leaders are outside his door clamoring for Pilate to come out and condemn this man to death. It's very possible that before this night, Pilate had never even heard of Jesus. There's no, nothing in the historical records about him that indicates that he was in any way interested in Jewish religion or controversies. In fact, he was a horrific anti-Semite. He hated the Jews and their religion and the region he had been sent to rule. And in fact, there's good historical evidence that the reason he gives in to them is because he had lost his patron at Rome and he was trying to make sure he kept his job. But it's very possible he, he had never heard of Jesus or even seen anything about him until this very day. And here's this itinerant rabbi from Galilee that many people claim is a miracle worker standing before him. And all he knows probably about Jesus is that these Jewish leaders say that he claims to be king of the Jews. Now that would be a term in Pilate's mind that would have real significance. Because if you are, if you are going around in a province of the Roman Empire claiming to be king, guess what you are doing? You are setting yourself in opposition to the central government. It would be like if you were a person living in China and you went around claiming to be the premier of that country. You know, I don't know much, but I know the Communist Party takes a real dim view of people doing that, right? And the Romans, in a similar way, took a very dim view of anybody going around one of the regions that they ruled claiming to be the true king of it. And so that's the charge that these Jewish leaders lay on Jesus so that they can tell Pilate, this guy's a rebel and a revolutionary, you should put him to death. And so Pilate asks uh, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered that question like a rabbi would with a question. Do you say this of your own accord or do others say it about me? Jesus is, in effect, turning the tables. He's interrogating Pilate even as Pilate is interrogating him. And what he's saying is, is in effect, this. Do you really want to know the answer? Or is that just an accusation that you've heard? Jesus is trying to get at Pilate's heart, and so he doesn't answer directly because he knows what Pilate will think if he just gives him a straight yes or no. 
He's going to say, well, if you say yes, that's all I need to hear. You are a rebel. And I need to get rid of you. But even in his trial, he is trying to get at Pilate's heart and to help Pilate to understand that the answer to this question is more important than he currently sees. Pilate has a hardened heart. And so he just brushes Jesus' question aside and he says, Am I a Jew? Just tell me what you've done already. I'm not interested in all your controversies among you people. Who cares about all of that? I'm here to decide if you're guilty or a crime, of a crime or not. And by the way, your leaders have got me out of bed, so I'm kind of inclined to, for guilt here, all right? Jesus replies, look at what he says. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's, uh, it's not physical, it's not earthly, it's spiritual, it's eternal. I'm not leading a rebellion out to overthrow Pilate and overthrow Rome. I'm here to present the truth to people and to draw all people who want to listen to the truth to me. And Pilate, again, is dismissive. What is truth? In other words, he sees Jesus as just kind of this guy who, has, who is going around saying things that cut cross-grain with these guys' theology, but not really a harmful person. He sees Jesus as a guy who's a, maybe a traveling philosopher. That's the category that he has him in. And he's saying, look, nobody can answer these questions. And if these guys are just jealous of Jesus' influence, well, they need to grow up. He's, maybe he's just giving unapproved answers to questions nobody can know the answer to for sure. But he's certainly not guilty of a capital offense. And so he comes out to these religious leaders and he says, I find no guilt in this man. In other words, there, he hasn't done anything. You know, and I'm not going to wade into your religious argument here. Now look at verses 29, or 39 and 40. Pilate offers them a choice, keeping with the custom of releasing to them one prisoner that they wanted instead of punishing him. It was his way of currying favor with these people. He said, look, I, I, let, me, let me give you one guy. You can pick any guy you want. You want me to release to you Jesus, the king of the Jews? What do they say? Not this man. No, no. But Barabbas. And John fills in the detail with who Barabbas is. He says, now Barabbas was a robber. If you look at the other gospel writers, they'll tell you that he is also a murderer and that he was guilty in the latest insurrection. In other words, against the latest violent rebellion against Rome. So let me ask you, what kind of a king do they want? Not the king of a heavenly kingdom that you can't see, that isn't apparent here right now, but they want the king of an earthly kingdom, one they can, one they can have positions and authority in, one that will make them rich, one that will 
elevate them, one that they will be able to see, one that they will, will give them temporary power and glory in the here and now. By the way, it's interesting, you know, Jesus is, according to the Scriptures, the Son of God the Father, amen? He is. You know what Barabbas' name means? Son of a father. I don't know anything about Barabbas' genealogy. Maybe his mama didn't know who daddy was. And so she just says, he's the son of a father. I don't know which one. But he's the son of a father, not the son of the father. And so they pick him. Given a choice between a guy who is a thief, a murderer, and a rebel, and a man who is the son of God, who is completely innocent, whose claim to being Messiah is fully validated by what he has said and done. They say, give me that temporary kingdom. That's the one I really want. Give me the one that gives me power and glory right now. I'm not looking for a Messiah that will save from sin and death and hell. I'm looking for a, a Messiah who will reestablish David's throne, who will make Israel a nation again, who will throw off the yoke of the occupier. Barabbas is the kind of man who can get it done. Let's get him. Let's pick a man of low character over the Prince of Peace. Now at this point, it would be very tempting for all of us to mount our nearest high horse and look down on these religious leaders and say, you know, I don't know why they were so foolish. I don't know why they couldn't see that given a choice between Jesus and Barabbas, that the choice is obvious. But as we go pointing fingers at them, you know, remember what your mama said? When you point at somebody else, you got several fingers pointing back at you, right? And we need to feel those fingers pointing back at us. And let me ask you the question again. Do you want Jesus, the King of the eternal kingdom, or do you want temporary power and glory in an earthly one? You know, if you look at this, from a political perspective, many, and I'm going to say of us Christians on the right, because I'm going to include myself in this, have proved ourselves willing to sell out a lot of our former objections to having a liar, self-aggrandizing, immoral braggart as president in order to gain proximity to power. We like that. We also have sometimes entwined our rightward political leanings with our Christianity so that sometimes even our children can't tell where one stops and the other starts. If you talk to a lot of millennials out there, that's what they will say a lot of times as well. I can't tell whether my mom and dad are really into Jesus or the Republican Party. Because I don't know where one stops and the other begins. People on the left 
our left-leaning brothers and sisters, a lot of times have often proven themselves willing likewise to sell out their former objections to a leader's character to make the same exchange of proximity to power. And they want to gain it for what they see as their team. They're also prone to confuse their preferred policies with biblical teaching. And they're often willing to endorse things morally that the Bible condemns explicitly. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? It is because we like being part of a kingdom we can see. Amen? We do. We like being part of a kingdom we can see and having that advance. And we value more often things down here than things of God and of the heavenly realm. If you don't believe me, ask yourself this question. Do more people know where you land on political things than know where you stand with Jesus? Have you been happy to have a discussion with somebody about the latest and you know political controversy but you're too afraid to bring up Jesus Christ your savior with the same person? You understand what I'm saying? And by the way, I use that word us for a very specific reason. I include myself in this. I got beat up in my study this week because I like politics. I read conservative magazines. I vote in every election. I tell other people how they should vote. Okay? (laughs) You hear what I'm saying? But there is a kingdom that is eternal and it matters more. And we should not devote more energy to what is earthly and temporary than we do to what is eternal and lasting. Jesus is a different kind of king over a different kind of kingdom. Amen? And we're to seek the welfare of the place that we live as best we can. I'm not saying Christians don't be involved in politics. I'm not saying that. We're to seek the welfare of the city into which you have been sent as aliens, is what God told the people of Israel through Jeremiah. I think that applies to us. We're to seek the welfare of the place that God has put us. But remember what the verse says, where I have sent you as aliens. In other words, we're not to live like natives. We're not to fit in. We're not to be like everybody else. And we're not to confuse the advancement of political ideas that we like with the advancement of God's kingdom. They are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. And we must not trade away our prophetic role of 
calling people to repent and to find new life through faith in Jesus Christ for political power in the here and now. And we must not trade biblical morality for social acceptability. We can't do that. To do that is to tell people who are, in, who are engaged in serious, life-threatening sin that will one day send them to hell unless they repent, that there is no hope for them. It is to rob them of the very thing that would give them life. We can't do that. That is not compassion. That is not kindness. To tell people that, that continuing to sin is going to lead to life. That is like handing out M&Ms in the cancer ward and telling people that if you just eat these, that everything will be fine. We've got to stand. And we've got to stand against both currents in our country. We have a prophetic role to play, and we need to play it. Amen? We do. All right, one more thing. You may not be that into politics. You may not be a junkie like me, recovering political junkie that I am. All right? But this message is still for you because... All of us, every single one of us, has within themselves a deep desire to be king of their own kingdom. To be king of his or her own life. And sometimes we don't want Jesus to dethrone us and to take his rightful place on the throne of our hearts. And we want instead riches or sex or power or fame or social acceptance or whatever... But what we don't want is Jesus. We don't want to have to trust and obey Him when there's something that I really, really want to do at stake instead. And the thing is, is that trusting and obeying Jesus when it gets hard to do so is precisely where the Christian life, where the rubber meets the road. I don't struggle with all the commands of Jesus that I like. Amen? I struggle with the ones where he tells me to do something that rubs me the wrong way. And, you know, some, some, somebody told uh, the, the old evangelist Billy Sunday, who was back in the early 20th century, he said, they said, Billy, you're rubbing the fur the wrong way. And he said, well, then turn the cat around. <laughs> okay and and that is what we've got to do right when when the when the word of god rubs the fur on us the wrong way we need to turn the cat around and this cat needs to turn around amen and so do, and so do you i'll bet because we all have areas of our life when we would rather have Barabbas than have Jesus. We would rather have glory and power now than honor and glory before God later. You know what the, the solution to all this mess is? Is one six-letter word, repent. 
means to turn around. It means to go a new direction, to dethrone yourself from your life and yield it up to King Jesus instead. To recognize that the kingdom that matters is not the one of this world, although we look to the day that it will one day be present within it. And what Jesus values isn't what the world values. He calls us instead to lay down our lives for him, to submit to his authoritative word, to advance his cause of proclaiming the saving gospel to people of every every imaginable variety, and to live our lives as strangers and aliens in the places where he has put us. And to whatever extent we aren't doing that, we need to do this six-letter word and repent, right? To whatever extent we have made politics more important than Jesus, we need to repent. To whatever extent that we have decided that we want glory for ourselves in this area of our life or this area of our life or this area of our life, to whatever that area of life is that we have elevated above Jesus himself, we need to dethrone that and submit to him. Amen? Because I don't want to be part of the crowd yelling for Barabbas. I want Jesus to be king of my life in every part of it. And I want that for you too. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, save us from our stupidity. Save us from elevating the temporary over the eternal. Save us from elevating our preferences over your commands. Save us from elevating what society thinks and our desire for social approval over your eternal word. Father, save us from ourselves. Father, we are sinners, and given a choice, we will pick Barabbas over Jesus every time. Father, we don't want to do that. We want to walk with you. We want to uh, bring you glory. We want to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. We want to follow you every step of the way, wherever you lead us. And Father, we pray that you will help us because we desperately need your help to see all the areas where we're weak, to see the areas where we have enthroned ourselves instead of Jesus. Father, may Jesus have his rightful place as king over all of us. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.